Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the third sector mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC, which along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities. Author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts books. Introducing your host, Paul Lowe. Welcome listeners, I hope all is well and you're continuing to achieve your goals in life. On the subject of goals, it is my immense pleasure to host this episode and have a nostalgic conversation with an all-time record goalscorer for Notts County Football Club, Les Brad. As well as being a prolific marksman in football, Les is someone I have been privileged to have shared a 20-plus year quality friendship with. Welcome, Les. Thanks, Paul. Good to see you again. Thank you. So, Les, if we can start, as it states in your book, Far Post... You scored 136 goals for Notts County, and I think a really good starting point for us is to pick on one of your statements from the book. And I quote, I have never experienced anything in life that compares to the very special atmosphere that is generated in the dressing room of a football club. Can you elaborate for us, Les, what that feels like to us as, as, as mere supporters? I think it's uh, it stemmed from my boyhood days of, of uh, dad. Um, taking me on a on a sort of an annual visit to Old Trafford to see his favourite team Arsenal, and an experiencing standing there was no seats then it was standing in the crowd and the atmosphere the marching bands and 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 to see players scoring goals and the excitement that it created the buzz that I got from it from watching um, and and. Moving on in time, you know, to um, to being involved in a, a normal working life. I didn't start out as a professional footballer. I worked as a as a motor mechanic at the age of uh, fifteen, and then in a, a local limestone quarry, um, and to to work with with guys who who also love football, uh, like to go and see football, and then have the opportunity. To walk out onto a football pitch, well, that was wow, and and there's nothing like being in the dressing room with a group um, of like-minded people, educated into winning. Um, the buzz when you walk through that door, knowing that you've got a great chance of, um, of 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 going out there, winning the game, exciting those fans. Just a wonderful, wonderful time. So exciting those fans, Les. Now, coming at it from a, a supporter's perspective, um, obviously when Saturday comes, the excitement around, you know, the bovril, the meat pie, the reading the programme from back to front and all that anticipation of, yeah, when Saturday comes. But as a player, what was it like for you, the other side of the fence? Were you so focused on your professional goal in mind, i.e. to win the game, or did you actually, from you know how you've described there as a player and, and all the, all your teammates, were they ever mindful of, do you know what, I could just as easily be one of those guys out on the terraces? Well, um, it wasn't all quite as I explained early on. It was when a guy by the name of Jimmy Cyril, who became manager in, uh, in, in, in 1969, 
um, and taught a very young group of players that he inherited what really being a professional footballer meant and, and what your job meant in that team. He pointed out to me after one game, he sat me down and in his office on a Monday morning and asked me how I thought I'd played. And I thought I'd had a decent game. We'd beaten Fulham 2-0. And he said, you thought you had a decent game. Tell me how you thought you had a decent game. I said, I thought I won all the headers and held the ball up, passed it to Don Masson who spread it about. I got out wide and and um, and, and and beat the fullback. And he had generally had a good game. He said, how many goals did you score? And I hadn't scored any. And how many <laughs> goals did you set up? And I thought about it. I hadn't been involved in the two goals that we scored. And he said, your function in my team is to cause havoc in that 18-yard penalty box, disturbing defenders, making them look for you that they're not sure what's going on, scoring goals, creating chances. And if you don't do that, I have to find somebody that does. So it was educating every single player that there was a job to, 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 to enhance when you went on that football pitch. And if you did that, you became a team and a very good team. And in doing that, those supporters that were coming down to watch you were getting very excited because in anticipation, they felt something exciting was going to happen. And obviously from, from small beginnings, small crowds, bigger crowds came, the atmosphere changed completely, the buzz around the place. Um, scoring goals to me, wasn't vitally important. Winning, getting results was, I got a bigger kick from that, to be honest with you. And um, thinking back, maybe I should have been a bit greedier in situations, but I'm very happy with the career that I had in football. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned uh, um, in in a, in an era these days where the word legend is, is in my opinion, thrown around like confetti, but you've, you've mentioned a certain, uh, manager's name there, Jimmy Cyril, which I think by any stretch of the imagination um, from top to bottom is and, and will always be a legend, particularly at this football club. And I, and I know I speak to a friend of mine, trainer John in Spain, uh, who's, a, who's an avid blade, um, and he speaks immensely highly of, of Jimmy because Jimmy spent a, a bit of time at Bramwell Lane, didn't he? Um, yes, he, he, he left us um, and went to Sheffield United who were playing at higher level. It didn't go particularly well for him for 18 months there. And um, he, he came back to Notts County. Um, maybe this was his club. You don't, mm. It doesn't always work out, does it? Um, we've seen that with, with some modern-day managers. But um, um, the, the group of lads that he had here, you know, bought into his philosophy, um, in, enjoyed training, enjoyed playing. Um and he has to be held in very high esteem over the, the, the 20 plus years that he was here, taking the club from the depths of, in those days, Division 4 up into Division 1. Yeah. And and just for the listeners that um, for in this podcast that may not be avid Notts County people or even football people, what what we try and do here is knit together the nostalgia of, of success and what that what that feels like and and we'll come to this a little bit more later on but Jimmy was actually a manager that took Notts County all the way from the 
the basement, I think, as it was fam- uh, familiarly called in those days, Les, Division 4 in old money, if you will, all the way up to what would now be called the Premier League. And that that's what he did. And um, something that not many clubs do um, this day and age, Bournemouth, um, you know, there's a club that we battled away with in the fourth division. When John Bond was their manager, we were both got promoted together from the fourth to the third. Um, Knotts went on up into the, the second division. Bournemouth stayed behind. But over recent years, they've had a, a great run with Eddie Howe and um, he's taken them up into the premiership. Gates of oh, full houses there at 12,000 and doing tremendously well. What... Uh, um, what success he's brought to that club. Phenomenal achievement. And from a player perspective, Les, what would, I mean, obviously you're not involved in the intimate dealings of, of Bournemouth, um, but from your per- perception as an ex-pro and obviously still deeply involved with Notts County Football Club, what do you think Eddie's success is? You know, how can somebody, a manager, go into a club and achieve and Martin O'Neill's got a similar kind of track record of success. We've mentioned Jimmy, another one, Brian Clough, and yet again we'll come to Cloughy in a bit. What is it about these managers that they can do these things? Uh, I think if uh, I could give you the the answer to that, there'd be a lot more <laughs> managers doing the same. Um, I can only uh, tell you my experiences with Jimmy, how he gelled us as as a, as a group of players. Um, we, we were not only successful on the pitch, off the pitch, we attended many events, many functions, many um, charities, uh, supported locally. Um, you know, Jimmy would stick a notice up on, on the board that um, there was a charity um, that was doing pushing over pennies for whatever could any players go and the whole team would turn out. That's the sort of group that he had. And... Um, during the good spell that we were having um, with Notts County, Nottingham Forest were also having a, a, a good spell with um, with Brian Clough. Mm. Um, I got to know some of the lads. Martin O'Neill was one of them. John Robertson, Larry Lloyd. Larry Lloyd became a, a friend of mine. He signed me for Wigan in later years. And um, much the same happened over there. Um, Brian was was so highly uh, thought of by the players in, in, in the way... He was asking players to play. Everything was so simple, nothing complicated. Mm. Um, that every player knew exactly what they had to do when they went out there, um, and they achieved success as well, didn't they? Of a, a greater proportion, just a bit, yeah, definitely. One of your former playing colleagues, Les David Needham. How lights? How we often get asked whether you should achieve more in the game. Talking about you, do you feel you should have achieved more in the game? Looking back on it all, um, it was foot- football in the days that I played um, was very different to this day and age. There was no freedom of contract. When you signed for a football club, um, you were that club's possession until they wanted you to go. Um, you mentioned Jimmy Cyril leaving and going over to Sheffield United. Um, Ronnie Fenton took over as the manager of Notts County and he told me that um, the previous year Notts County had turned down a bid of 105000 from West Brom um, who were playing in the first division in those days. So I never got the opportunity to move. If the club have said yes to the 
um, and accepted that that amount of money, then you know I, I could have gone. Mm. Um, so um, Dave Needham, um, he left us. Um, um, I think um, a deal was done with Jack Dunnett, who was um, the owner of Notts County in those days, who had a relationship with QPR and the owner of QPR. Um, Don Masson moved there also, so um, may, maybe some sort of deal was done. I'd, I'd, I don't know, but um, um, I never really got the opportunity. Uh, I was told that two first division clubs um, joined my career were interested. I know Bill Shankly watched me um, play up at Halifax one evening, um, but it didn't happen. Mm. And you couldn't cause any trouble behind the scenes because the club, if I tell you that if you sign a two-year contract, when that contract finished, if you didn't accept the new contract um, and say said you were going to leave, the club will say, fine, leave. Mm. But you couldn't go and play anywhere. They retained your 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 signature that you couldn't just go and play anywhere unless it, that club that you had signed for um, agreed to it. So that's that's how it was in those days. Mm. Um, and and maybe the pendulum was too far in favour of the club those days. And maybe now it's gone too far in favour of the player and and agents and players are, are sort of. Um, I think they upset quite a lot of um, fans. Fans question their passion for the club. You know, it, certainly in the days that I played, um, the drive was to play football and you love to wear the badge of that club that you played for. I ain't sure that that is the case nowadays. I think mm. it's the money-driven um, players very, very quickly. Um, would like to leave after, shall we say, signing a contract a month or two months previously because yeah. more money's come along. S- sad state of affairs for me. Mm. Indeed, yeah. Part of your book, Les, in the earlier stages refers to, well, what you refer to as social education. Um, do you feel today's youth generally miss out on your understanding of social education. Give us an insight into what that social education is, Les, or was. Well, what it meant to me was um, football um, was a game that I loved. Um, on the street that where I lived, um, there was nobody else that, um, that played football, so I had to make my way or walk just over a mile where um, shirts were put down and, and, and small-sided games started. Um and these started after school or they started on Saturdays and Sundays, um, usually three or four a side um, that developed into 20 a side. Mm. Um, boys as old as 15 or 16 playing with youngsters, five, six-year-old in the team. And when I say social education, um, you're educated into the skills of growing up. The big lads looked after the small lads so they didn't get bullied. Um, you learn to toughen up. You know all about being knocked about in, in, in tackles and get up, be a man. Don't let anybody see the pain that you might mm. be carrying. And, and um, Learning how, how important you, it is to be a team member. Um, so... 
I think, yes, there's lots of social skills that I certainly picked up in, in my younger days growing up. And I wonder about the boys and girls of today, if you care to drive around Nottingham and see those um, football pictures on the embankment or most parks, there's very few lads there mm. or girls kicking balls about this day and age. Um, when I talk to... Um, to parents, they say it's too dangerous for them to go out on their own and they like to come home and play on their iPads. Um, interesting that I spoke to a former physio, physio of uh, Forest and Notts County um, a few years ago. I was talking about injuries that players had um, that I didn't understand because they weren't injuries that, um, that, that I experienced. And he put it put it down to the development of the bodies that younger youngsters in the, the, the younger days, they go scrumpy and they climb trees, they fall mm. down, the, the body gets knocked around a bit. Yeah. This day and age, he felt that it didn't develop quite the same. Mm. So, yeah, lots of issues really in, in youngsters um, growing up and, and, and developing this day and age to, to when I was a lad. Character building, Leslie, I think is how I'd describe it. Character building. Okay, page 22 of your book, Les, Far Post. You refer to the fact there wasn't any televised football when you were a youngster. A Melchester Rovers, big blonde, centre forward, Roy Race, <laughs> became your primary focus. Tell us about the blonde bomber. <laughs> I couldn't wait for the comic Tiger coming out each week. Because in that comic, um, there was um, um, a football, shall we say, dedicated story, um, Roy of the Rovers, about this this uh, blonde-haired centre-forward called Roy Race. <laughs> and, and to see the, the, the captions in this comic, the, the whizzing through the defence, the Headers going in the top corner of the goal. The shots going in the bottom corner with the keeper diving at full length, couldn't get them. That was um, the education of football that I saw. Um, because as I said, um, football, if you wanted to see a live match in my younger days, the nearest um, um, matches were going to take place in Manchester or in Derby, you know, both 30 miles away from Buxton where I was brought up and transport was very difficult in those days. So dad usually took us out two or three times a year. So it was fantastic to see this this guy who, who scored goals for fun and um, mm. became my idol. Yeah. So uh, the Blonde Bomber, Les, because obviously for, for the benefit of our, our non-Notts County listeners, that was actually your nickname as, um, was it the Blonde Bomber or the Bomber? Um. During a practice match um, one day, and Jimmy Cyril was the manager, um, John Nixon had the ball on the right-hand side. John Nixon was the, the, the right winger. And um, he did something and the ball got stopped or, or, or he got tackled. And Jimmy blew his whistle and said, stop, stop. Um, and, and John, when you get the ball here, and he demonstrated that he needed to push it one side, and kick it high to the far post yeah. where the bomber will come in flying in. And he demonstrated I would be come flying in yeah. 
the bomber, like an air aeroplane bomber, coming in on that far post to head the ball. Um, my mate Bill Brinley was in stitches, and <laughs> after training that day, where's a bomber? And and that's that's how how it was uh, originated. Yeah. So no direct link with um, Roy Race as such. No direct. No 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 direct link with Roy, Roy Race. In my younger days, when I got a mop of hair, obviously bald now, I did have blonde hair, and it was the blonde bomber. The blonde it was, bomber. That was the origination of the same. Okay. October 67, Les, as a 19-year-old, you signed for Notts County from Rotherham United for the princely sum of £1,000. But 50 years on, how do you feel about how the game's changed, um, and particularly, say, from a money perspective? Well, first of all, it was £1,000, but a month later, uh, Tommy Doherty took over as manager at Rotherham United and um, did an exchange deal with um, Dave Watson, who was the Notts County centre-half. He went to Rotherham, and moving to Notts County was Keith Bring, a left winger. And Notts County, when they signed me, had put down a deposit of 500 and the other £500 that was outstanding got um, waved away in this deal. So I only actually cost Notts County £500. Um, it's difficult to to um, evaluate money in those days um, with with today because um, we we had contracts where you had a basic pay during the playing months um, that changed or, or went lower during the summer months yeah. on the grounds that you weren't playing. Mm. Um, Added to those contracts were incentives like appearance money, like drawing, like winning, like scoring goals. And it was very important that you were part of that because that sort of made up, made you into um, the salary that you were earning into in, into something more substantial. This day and age, um, the figures that you hear about, that you see quoted, um, there is none of that. I don't know what's in the contract, but players are now earning um, substantial amounts without even needing to kick a ball. Yeah. I was talking only this morning to our assistant manager um, how difficult it is to get a young player that's not even played football, that's mm. probably on the books of a championship or a, or, or, or a, um, a premiership team. Um, because they're earning in excess of £10,000 a week, having never kicked a ball. Um, I can't accept that as being right. I've read a story in today's paper of um, Tim Flowers, the England former England goalkeeper, who's now manager at Solihull Malters, and he's trying to get a goalkeeper to go and, and play for him and, and giving them the chance to experience um, first-team football in the National League. and. Mm just turned the nose up and said, no, we're not dropping down to that level. And they've never kicked a ball. So I don't, um, there's, there's, there's probably a molly coddling of, of, of um, footballers like we've just talked about with molly coddling of youngsters that mm. not kicking a ball about on the park. Yeah. They're going home on iPads. You know, this, um, 
the the young players now coming in, signing for top teams. Are they really interested in playing? Is football the drive? Because it certainly was in my day to every single player. No player was happier to club if they weren't being picked in the first team mm -hmm. and moved on. Now, somebody, I think somebody told me um, last week that Chelsea have nearly 40 players out on loan all over the world. Mm. You know, that can't be right, can it? It's kind of tactical buying, is it? You know, it's not that ne we're necessarily going to play that player, but you know what? You ain't going to get him. So we'll buy him and we'll just keep him in the reserves. Tactical buying. Mm. You touched upon wages there, uh, Les, for the benefit of our, our listeners. And yet again, I'm quoting this just to give some perspective on the, the good old days of prices. Your wages, you quote, at £14 season, £12 in the summer. And just to give that some perspective even further, a programme was sixpence then in old money, which is in modern money, three pence. I think the average programme now is about three quid, isn't it? Certainly in Nottingham. Yeah. Um, that's the escalation of, of, of money in the last... Um, 50-odd years that I've been alive. But um, mm. is it, a, is it, does it equate to the same value? Um, I'm not so sure. Um, full houses, even down at lower league football, with a, the, the, were often um, around in the games that I played in. Um, it isn't there this day and age. So I'm not sure whether families, individuals have got the money to spend on it quite the same. Mm. Man management and greatest managers. We've already flagged up uh, two names. Uh, and let's not forget Jack Wheeler in the context of, of Jimmy, Jimmy Cyril. But if we can bring in Jimmy and Jack and Brian Clough, what's your view, Les, about or your fond memories of those that particular dynamic trio? Yeah, I've touched on, um, on Jimmy. Um, Jack Wheeler... Uh, if it hadn't been for Jack Wheeler, I wouldn't have been around um, to become the record goal scorer. Um, before Jimmy Cyril came here, Jack Wheeler was caretaker manager for 18 months. And during that period of time, I was having a, a, a shall we say, a time not so good. My father had been diagnosed with cancer and um, it were tough times. And I lost my sight on, on, on what I was doing, playing football, thinking more about should I be back home um, with my family. Anyway, um, it came to the crunch and um, he took me into the main stand uh, and we sat down for an hour and we talked and talked and, and it was the most enlightening chat that I'd had for quite a while. And he put me... It got my head back in gear and, and, and gave me reason to play, um, you know, much much around the lines that Dad was still alive, watching what I was doing. He, I couldn't be doing him any good if he's picking up papers and seeing that I'm not in the team or I'm not scoring goals. And he got me back on track and I was got back in the first team scoring goals again. Mm. Um so he was fantastic. He was a guy that when you came in from training uh, or when you arrived for training, always laughing, always had a smile on his face. So if you were feeling down in the dumps, he would be lifting you. He was the physio, and if you happened to be injured at any time, that was always a time when he would work on you 
and he would be talking to you, making you feel totally motivated to go and play again. Um, and he also was very passionate about the club. Um, we, as a as a f- former players or so, um, group, have got a, an, an association and we honour um, players each year. Jack Wheeler was the very first person that we honoured um, when, when we formed our, our group. And I can remember Jack Wheeler having something like he's taken on the roles as manager, assistant manager, physio, coach, painter, decorator, kit man. I think he's probably covered every single job that you could imagine in the football club. So that's why I hold Jack in high esteem. Jimmy, um, Jimmy was from my side was, was purely football. Um, the simplicity of, of the role that you had on the pitch and how he explained it um, helped us to develop as a group and, and win and climb leagues. Um, as a person, um, not my cup of tea. Mm. And I touched on my dad suffering with cancer and in his uh, later years, um, he, he probably had the, the disease for three to four years and it was coming to a close. I used to go across and see him in Christie's hospital in Manchester. Yeah. And uh, on one such occasion, we were told as a family that dad had only got a few days to live. I came back to Nottingham. Um, this was on the Sunday. I went on the Monday morning. I went straight into the manager's office to let him know that um, my father had got a couple of days to live and I was going home. Um, you know, to stay with the family, uh, to which Jimmy said, no, you mustn't do that. Uh, you can't do any good there. You need to stay here and train. And I looked at him and, and he didn't want me to go. I went out the door and drove back on the Monday. On the Wednesday, my father passed away. Um, on the Thursday, I came back here to Knox County to be met by Jack Wheeler, who told me that Jimmy didn't want me to um trained with the first team and I had to go and change in the away team dressing room, which was for the reserves and the youngsters. And he didn't speak to me for a fortnight. Wow. Um, Move on a number of years. I've retired from football um, and I'm working in the Notts County Lottery Office and Notts County playing West Bromwich Albion in the first division. Um, and I've um, arranged to take coach load of junior magpies to Wembley the following day. Jimmy's asked me to go and see him on the Saturday at 10 in the morning before the match. Um, and I went into his office, had half an hour with him, um, a cup of tea, asked how things were going, how many kids were going, gave me a couple of videos to show on the way down. And I went back to do my job and then the match kicked off and finished one each. I went into the um, the bar after the game. Larry Lloyd was was coached then, and he was really down in the dumps. And I asked him what was the matter. We'd had a decent result, and he said, "Have you not heard the news?" And I said, "What news?" And he said, "Jimmy Cyril's wife, Kathy, has died this morning." I said, "Died this morning? When?" He said, "Oh, it was eight o'clock." 
So there's no way I was with him at 10 o'clock this morning and we were in the office and and I was told that she died at 8 o'clock and he'd rung the undertaker, got them to come around, take her away, then he'd come to work. After that game, he wrote his car off in the car park, got drunk and wrote his car off in the car park here. Nobody knew about it. And mm -hmm. That was Jimmy Cyril and nothing was going to interfere with football. And, mm -hmm. and, and I went, whilst this was happening, my memory flashed back to my experience with yeah. him with my dad and he didn't want, I haven't had a real tough job on the birth of my first son to go and see him. Wow. He, he only allowed me 15 minutes because we were due to travel to Portsmouth to play football that Friday. Football was everything to, to, to Jimmy Cyril, so you can... Mm. But full respect for him for everything that he did for that group of players and, 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 and moving forward in football. Brian Clough, um, Brian Clough didn't know particularly well, um, um, never came in contact with him when he was managing, getting great success. But having completed 10 years here as a, as a player, I was um, given a testimonial match. The chairman of my testimonial committee was John Mountney. Um, and he told me that um, he'd been in contact with Brian Clough and that Forrest would be very happy to come across here and play a match for my testimonial. But I had to go and see him. So um, a date had been fixed, which was um, a Wednesday morning um, at 10 o'clock. Wednesday was days when um, generally you didn't train when the football season was in full flow. Went over to the city ground, was met with uh, Brian's secretary, who escorted me into the room opposite Brian's office. And I sat in this room, nobody else in there, for three quarters of an hour. Um, after which his secretary came in and said, Les, um, Brian's very sorry, can't see you today, he's busy. Can you come back next Tuesday night? There's a reserve match kicking off at seven o'clock. He'd like to see you here at six o'clock. So I left and that's it. Came back the following um, week at six o'clock. Was met again with uh, his secretary shown to the same room. Nobody in there. Yeah. And at quarter to seven, she came in again and said, Les, Mr. Clough is very, very sorry. He can't see you. The match is kicking off soon. He's busy. Um, and I went out to the, oh, could you come back next Wednesday at 10 o'clock? And I went out of the office and I wasn't very happy. Mm. And I went to a call box. There's no mobile phones in those days. Rung John Mountney. Who the hell does he think he is <laughs> messing me about like this? Because I was quite popular in the in the city at the time, yeah. scoring goals. Yeah, um, tell him where to go. Uh, we'll go and find somebody else to play. And John convinced me that I had to go back one more time. And I went back one more time. The Wednesday, once again, metered by... Uh, so he met with his uh, secretary, shown into the same room. This time, there was 20-odd seats filled with, as a glance around the room, all the top national sports writers. One seat empty, and that's where I sat next, by the door. Sat down, the door closed, and I looked around, saw all these faces, and I thought, I'm not going to wait behind this lot here. I got up just as the door opened, and his secretary said, Gentlemen, Mr. Clough has got a very important meeting with 
Mr. Brad today. Can you all go and he'll see you tomorrow? Wow. And and obviously he'd been testing me for a couple of yeah, times to see yeah. if I really wanted it. And yeah, um, when I went in, it was absolutely fantastic. I gave him five possible dates, all of which he said, we can't play, we've got matches. Um, and then he said to me, which date do you want? So I thought he said, we couldn't do any of these games. Which date do you want? And I told him my preferred date. He called his secretary in, put this date in the diary, get that fixture changed. We're playing that match then, and they did. Right, wow. <laughs> so that's that's where he's held in my esteem. And I moved over to Forest to work for, for 12 very happy years and um, got to know John McGovern, Kenny Burns quite well, and stories that they told of, of, mm. of, of Brian Clough and um, the Monday morning 25-pound red tree meeting where he educated players how he wanted them to play. Um, if I can explain that a little clearer, all the players were in this meeting and Brian Clough would pass on an envelope, 25-pound fine on it, and he'd give it to Kenny Burns and Kenny Burns would say, what's this for? Do you remember in the 15 minute you had the ball, you passed it square to Larry Lloyd? That could have finished in the back of our net. £25 fine. <laughs> Tony Woodcock had received one. What's this for? Do you remember in that 25th minute you were straight through on goal, 18 yards out, and you shot over the crossbar? We can't score a goal if you don't hit the target. £25. Thinking of next time, under no pressure, must hit the target. Mm. If the keeper says, okay. Yeah. And that was his way of educating players into doing the right thing. Yeah. So three wonderful guys, you know, all different um, attributes, shall we say, but knew how to motivate people. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I, I think, you know, for me, Les, and uh, obviously I've had the, the pleasure of, um, I suppose, studying the psychology of these, and I will call them greats, and I would call them legends, as I say, at a time in today's era where that word is banded around. It's just chucked around like confetti. But for me, those three people, far less um, kind of knowing um, Jack Wheeler, got to know Jimmy very well um, through my uh, drinking exploits down at the Cross Keys, him and Dave Mackay, God rest Dave as well. Um, and obviously Cluffy, well, you know my history and story around that. That's another time, another place. As we start to draw towards the final whistle, Les, and as a red, this does pain me, but I've got to face it. And I can see by the smile on your face, you know exactly where this is going. The thrill of a derby game. I suspect, and I shouldn't assume, but I suspect you're going to single one out in particular. Um, during my testimonial year, I was asked to name my my top 10 goals and the one that you're talking about <laughs> I think it's going to be the last minute winner at Forest 89th minute yeah um, yeah but as I said before um, it wasn't personal um, gain it, it was fantastic the thrills when I look back over my career the thrills were that team that group of players winning things maybe I should have had a bit more of being a bit selfish and scoring goals, but mm. there were goals and, and, and they gave me a great thrill. Um, the, the game that you're talking about was um, um, at the city ground. I think it was 1975. It was. And Forrest had been by far the better team for most of the match. Mm. 
And it was in the last minute, our goalkeeper, Eric McManus, kicked a um, high ball down the pitch, which headed out to Ian Scanlon. And they then got galloping to the box. Ian Scanlon went down the left wing, crossed the ball. It just went over Sammy Chapman's head and I headed it and it found its way underneath um, John Middleton into the net. And looking round, seeing lots and lots of black and white scores <laughs> up in the air, disappearing out of the ground, you know, yeah. but, and the whistle blew shortly afterwards. Um, it, it meant probably more to me that, that Notts County had beaten Forest because when I joined the club, um, the owner of, of Notts County in those days was Bill Hopcroft, mm. a local businessman who had car auctions and who saved the club from going out of extinction. And he said to me when I signed that it was always his dream to play at the same level as Forrest. In those days, Forrest were in the first and Notts were in the fourth. Yeah. And, um, you know, that that happened. And, and after the game, he came in the dressing room and gave me a big hug. So, you know, that was probably the arrival, shall we say, of Notts County being able to compete at, 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 at the top level. But I can go. It didn't mean as much to me, maybe as the fans. What meant more to me was going to Ellen Road and beating Leeds United, who were a top first division club, and then having the manager and the players telling us how well we played and that we'd won on merit, you know. Mm -hmm beating Everton and Stoke out here who were top clubs at the time, you yeah. know, it, we'd arrived and we could compete with anybody. So that was the, the greatest satisfaction, I think, that probably I had over the years here. Okay. So on a more personal level then, Les, as we do, uh, as the referee proverbially puts the whistle to his mouth, whether football or life, both are ever-changing games. And how we do one thing is how we do everything. So what would be your message to the world? irrespective of their football club loyalty, or even if they don't like footballers, as a person, as a footballer, and or both, what would you want to be remembered for? What would be your, if you could single one message out to the world, what would you want that to be? Um, the message to me would be that um, I was born and bred as far away from football civilization, shall we say, as possible. In, in this country, you know, 30 miles from any professional club, um, no um, football academies. My training was kicking a ball up against the wall on my own, on my own, heading the ball, using the garage doors for take penalties, um, going out in the field, kicking a ball with my dad. Um, after school matches, you know, as I talked about a little earlier on, on the fields over a mile away, walking down there, coming back before it got dark. Um, I pushed and pushed because I wanted to be a professional footballer. I was the first professional footballer to come from Buxton, which I'm very proud of because they said mm -hmm. never would there be a professional footballer from Buxton, but yeah. it happened. Yeah. So follow your dream wherever it wants to take you. Follow that dream, and I'm sure you can make it. Never give up. Never give up. Ride the tackles, to use a football metaphor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, who knows? Without trying, you never get there. Absolutely. Okay, Les, is there anything that, I mean, I've you know I've certainly enjoyed that uh, touching nostalgia, and it's interesting that the acronym that we use for this particular 
uh, episode is is win wonderful inspiring nostalgia and for me les you've certainly provided that so on a personal level i do and i know we're close friends and that but i do thank you for that is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't covered or you'd like to just throw in the on the on the pitch so to speak i think the possibly the only thing that i haven't really touched on in 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 depth would be um nottingham the supporters of nottingham you know mainly the Notts County supporters, but over the last 50 years since I moved here, I've made Nottingham my home um, and I've got, you included, many, many tremendous friends, both Forest and Notts, um, you know, and, and it's just an absolute pleasure to bump into people, to reminisce matches and times. And I think that is so important in life that you've got, reflections that you can look back on definitely yeah they they're great comforted times of uh of challenge aren't they definitely Absolutely. okay so just to reiterate let's my sincere gratitude to you and to to you the listeners for uh, listening to this wonderful inspiring nostalgia podcast and for being part of the mastering life podcast and until the next time keep learning and loving and always remember mastering life starts by embracing our hearts Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember, mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.